Our next speaker is Nick Spall, who's a long-standing friend of the Society, and he's a freelance writer about space topics, uh, written in many publications, and he's going to give us a perspective on uh, our today's subject, Garen's legacy, from that of a writer. Thank you. Thanks, Pat. Um, hello, everybody, and Dobry uh, Den, previous to our, our Russian colleagues today. Great honor to be um, here following uh, Dr. Kutov's talk, and um, one, one thought that occurs to me, and we heard earlier on how the uh, Gagarin was the first of about 500 astronauts and cosmonauts. Um, he flew for the first time ever 18,000 miles an hour, which is five miles a second, an incredible speed. Um, at that stage, time dilation kicks in, and uh, minuscule amounts, but uh, Einstein obviously told us how, uh, how how time changes when you're traveling at high speed. Um, maybe this is the answer to why astronauts keep their age. It's nothing to do with physical fitness or their, uh, their good training. And um, Dr. Uh, Oleg there is, is probably a good example. You've spent a year, almost a year, cumulative time in space. So you're slightly younger than the rest of us, relatively, anyway. But I'd like to tell the story of um, Yuri Gagarin's flight in both a, um, a human story and about the technology. And also I'd like to press on and try and, within the very short time, try and look at what the next 50 years could bring us in a very um, a very fast way. So we must press on with the story. It's one of um, great, uh, great historic intrigue and, and a, a terrific um, combination of key personalities. And some of them in the story, Gagarin's story, are there. Obviously right from the start, as we heard earlier this morning, uh, Konstantin Silivkovsky, extraordinarily born in 1857. It seems a phenomenal time ago. But he was the first um, serious scientist or engineer as well to look at the possibilities of space travel. He, he lived till 1935, and he laid the groundwork for a lot of the, the early people like von Braun and obviously Sergei Korolev, chief designer, hidden from the West for many years. But Korolev was inspired by Silivkovsky, and developed with others the the technology that got Gagarin into space. But behind them is Nikita Khrushchev, or behind Korolev was Nikita Khrushchev, who obviously was very keen on using space, as we heard this morning from Professor de Groot, in a, a political sense, an international sense. We're at the height of the Cold War, and Khrushchev was able to use the space program for international politics as much as as the, the achievement itself. A key person to Gagarin's story is General Nikolai Kaminin, who was the head of the astronaut um, selection and training at the time. He himself was a hero, was a hero of the Soviet Union um, in the 30s, a, a, an aviator, a very key, key person, but very strict. Um, many people have, have described him as almost Stalinesque in his discipline. But he, as well as Korolev and, of course, Khrushchev, realized with Gagarin the, the key um, excellent uh, qualities that Gagarin had of not only being very fit and, and very enthusiastic and dedicated, but also uh, the right personality to carry on the post-Gagarin the post, um, uh, launch and return. And finally, over on this side, we have Valentin Glushko, who was a key engineer as head of the uh, design bureaus producing rocketry and obviously the engines of the R7 launcher. So staying with Korolev, 
Uh, you can see on the left, you've got the, his early days in the 30s as a member of the Moscow GERD, which was a rocket society, a, a semi-official, very similar to the German VFR, and in fact the, the British, uh, British Interplanetary Society, which was way back in the early 30s. But they were actually producing proper uh, liquid fuel rockets. This one, uh, the, the GERD X, with that's the date of 1933. I believe that's Korolev sitting there. I think it is. It's hard to work out. But he um, was part of that early movement, producing liquid fuel rocketry. He, his personal story um, is one of, in many ways, great sadness in his in his young life. In 1938, he became embroiled in the the Stalin purges, and he was arrested, sentenced to ten years um, hard labor in Siberia. Went off, spent four years there until 1942, where he managed to get out due to pressure from various um, key personalities at the time. Obviously, this was during the war period, and he was brought back to help with, as many other scientists were, help with um, the defences, and he, he worked on missile, anti-aircraft missiles in Moscow with Glushko. But Glushko, I should say, and he had never um, hit it off. There was terrific personal rivalry. Just jumping back to Valentin Glushko, he was one of the um, the, the key uh, if you like, problem people during the 1960s, obviously very clever in terms of being able to produce these engines, but as a personality very confronted with Gagarin. And sadly, I, I believe that confrontation may well have uh, cost, cost the Soviet Union uh, the moon, but we'll talk more on that shortly. So here we are. This is the, the rocketry that uh, got Gagarin where he was in orbit. The A2, which became the V2 revenge weapon produced by von Braun and Dornberger's team in, in Germany. Um, we know that uh, th about 3,000 of these were fired at London and Antwerp. Sadly, 2,700-odd people died in London and that alone as a result of this weaponry. But von Braun, and I recommend you read um, Reg Turnell's book, Moon Landings, to look at von Braun's uh, ambitions. Obviously, he was after a civil space program. He knew nothing about Korolev. Who Korolev knew all about him. Korolev's wife Nina was a translator. He used to read all the material from right from the word go. He knew exactly what the Americans are up to. And in reverse, von Braun and, and NASA, of course, knew very little about Korolev himself. So we have the the technology of the A2, which was studied very closely at the end of the the war by all sides, Russia and uh, Europe, and even Britain. Britain were involved in launches uh, of uh, at Cookshaven, uh, and I believe there's a story that um, the uh, team from the Soviet Union did actually include Korolev, but he was dressed as a chauffeur when he was uh, sent to to observe on, on behalf of. Uh, of at that time, it was the um, it, the Technology Institute, Rocketry Technology Institute in Moscow. This all led to the development of the R7, from the R1, which was a version of the, the A2, to the R7. The, the Glushko and Korolev studied the A2. They decided that heavy fins for steering these, this type of rocket was unnecessary, far too costly in weight terms. Also, this rocket had internal fuel tanks. And the great thing, of course, with uh, more modern rocketry is that the skin of the rocket itself is the, the edge of the tank. So we have here... The Vostok launcher, which is a version of the R7 Semyorka, which translates to Little 7. Uh, we have basically an R7, but on top of it we've got a lunar um, 
third stage, which is the the one that got the the lunar um, series of of probes to the moon uh, with the Vostok capsule itself on top. And a bit more detail, you can see at the base you've got the um, the four engines on each strap-on booster, and these are RD-107 and 108 engines. The verniers were the big breakthrough for steerage and, and control on the ascent. This is more of a detail. This is actually not a 107, this is a 108, but a key rocket developed by Glushko for the R7. We, had, we saw earlier on in the, the film some of uh, Gagarin's early life. should emphasize that um, the, this actually was the rebuilt version of his house where he lived. But he, all the stories are that he, he obviously, like many young people in, in occupied uh, Soviet Union at that time, Western Moscow, obviously saw some very serious things. There's a story that his brother was uh, hanged by his own scarf in revenge for some sabotage that he'd done. Uh, Gagarin witnessed this. Uh, he was rescued by uh, his mother Anna, but it must have been a, a profound effect on on a young young boy at that time. But he went on um, to join as an apprentice, join a, a, a found the Vietsky foundry in uh, in the Saratov region, and there he joined at a, a teenage years. He joined a flying club, an aero club. Obviously, like a lot of astronauts, it's an extension of a flying activity. So he qualified as a pilot and went on to join the Russian Air Force uh, in 1957 and as a sergeant and then a lieutenant. I, I should pause and just um, say this is one of my favorite photographs of Gagarin. His youth is actually smoking and he looks like a sort of typical truculent teenager that uh, that one would expect. So very healthy origins in, in my view. But of course, the key, uh, as we heard earlier, the key thing about uh, Gagarin as selection as, as an, the first cosmonaut is his relationship with Korolev. Um, very much, Korolev realised that out of the initial twenty and then the final six cosmonauts, Gagarin really did stand out. Short in stature, only five foot two, very enthusiastic when he was flying. He, he used to say how much he enjoyed high G training, and of course, um, his his Winning smile was one of the key things that, that led him to the final selection. Having said that, in the late stages, according to the diaries of Kamenin, the, um, the, the head of the astronaut selection, it was touch and go as to whether it would be Herman Titov, Stepanovich Titov, who would get that first flight. It was only a few weeks or a couple of weeks before that, um, that the selection was made. And right up until the final, the final day almost, uh, Kamenin mentions, he wonders whether he'd made the right choice. Titov, by comparison with Gagarin, was more, a more serious person, a more uh, academic or intellectual person. He loved quoting um, Pushkin poetry, but a bit of a contrast to, to Gagarin. But uh, the, the nice thing is they're both very young men. In fact, Titov is about a year and a half younger than Gagarin. You can see the enthusiasm. So pressing on to the technology and the, the equipment they had. This is um, the Vostok 1 3KA series that Gagarin used. This is basically it consists of two elements, the, the orbital capsule itself and then the instrument model. Around the instrument model, you've got oxygen, nitrogen, 16 oxygen, nitrogen bottles alternating. Um, this, the interesting thing is this is actually from a 19, well, probably a mid-60s book, that probably one of the rare books of the time by Kenneth Gatland, a long-time um, uh, BIS member and editor of, of Spaceflight and a 
an excellent writer. In those days, you can see how far we've come, but it was thought that the, the actual spacecraft in orbit actually had the, the third stage attached, as, as we can see there. In fact, it actually flew in orbit in that configuration. One of the key things to the story of, of this photograph is the umbilical connector, the electrical connections which we see connecting through to the instrument unit. Uh, as we'll hear very shortly, this was a key problem, and the design of it wasn't really cracked for a long time, and I'll tell you more shortly. So a bit more detail on the, the spacecraft itself. About five tons in total, and you've got two and a half tons of the the reentry capsule and two and a half tons of the instrument module. A little bit big, you can see up here the comparison with the Mercury, and obviously heavier than the Mercury. And as a result of that, um, obviously Russia had a big, or Soviet Union, had a big advantage over NASA in the early years of the Mercury program because they could actually end up squeezing, turning this into a Voshkod spacecraft and squeezing up to three cosmonauts inside it. We mentioned the, the detail of the, um, the spherical tanks for pressurization. About 11 uh, days worth of supply. The 11 days quite crucial because that's the time it was calculated that a natural decay uh, from orbit could occur. Supposing this crucial retro rocket failed to f to fire properly, and there had been in various tests, there had been great concern as to whether it would work. Um, on board inside the cabin, we had there is a, a a little compartment there which had 11 days worth of food and water supply. So they were prepared at the time uh, for a natural decay re-entry. Just going through the uh, key components of the, the interior, the, the key thing for the what I call the cockpit layout, but obviously we're talking about a spaceship, the, the first ever spaceship. Um, obviously Gagarin sitting there in his ejector seat, which I'll talk about more. In front of him, he's got the visor or visor um, little uh, window, which has got the special system for orientation. And if he had to do a manual re-entry, he would use this to line up the Earth's horizon to get in the right position for a retro firing. The, the machine was entirely automatic, but he did have uh, a control in an emergency situation. He didn't use it. The story goes, in fact, I think it's um, the famous 325 code number on board because there was a lot of fears as to whether he would, uh, no one knew whether a cosmonaut uh, would, would be able to sort of stay sane in such an extreme environment. There was concern about whether if he became violently space sick or, or he had uh, psychology problems, would he be able to um, control the spacecraft? He decided to make it fully automatic, partly for that reason. But in the event of a, uh, a failure of any, any component, he could put in a special code on a six-number uh, six keyboard. The number was 325. He wasn't, there was an envelope on board which he was meant to open in that emergency situation. The story goes that um, everyone ignored that and they told him, Korolev in particular told him the number well before the launch. So he was, uh, he was obviously confident in uh, his own, his own cosmonaut. And the, cause the nickname for Yuri Gagarin as, as the others of the six was, uh, Little Eagle. That was his, um, his rather nice, um, description from Korolev. So we have um, the, one of the key devices on board, which is actually above the... That's a camera with a spotlight that, in fact, Gagarin complained about on the return. And just above that is this control panel here, which was also used in the Voshkod um, series. A little component of that which is rather interesting is the globe locator, 
there's a, a little um, knob here, which that's that says correction, so you can readjust your position according to where you, you're doing ground check, where you know exactly where you are. The interesting one on this is that the position of the spacecraft is somewhere over the uh, north of Murmansk, I believe, and uh, I'm sure that would have meant that Gagarin would have done a second orbit, which which wasn't part of the plan. He's, his uh, other key instrumentation, warning and display lights over here, um, mission clock here, and a series of um, pressure and, um, and CO2 content uh, instruments there. Should say that, of course, Gagarin, although he was the first human, um, he was preceded by a series of, uh, of, of animals. Uh, the first was the rather sad, in my view, uh, story of Laika, the, the dog, who was sent up uh, not to be recovered. Uh, who, in fact, it was at the time it was said he died several days later in Sputnik 2 um, by the oxygen running out. And in fact, um, since then, it's been known that he sadly he overheated and died within a few hours but um, he was followed by a very significant thing for the the Vostok program which is the launch of Belkin Stroker who survived for 11 days uh, in in orbit they were the first real creatures going to orbit and following them of course we heard earlier this morning the famous flight of Ham the American um, chimpanzee January 31st 1961 and as we heard this morning because of the problems with that flight, where he went, uh, the, the ascent was too high, he ended up um, in high G, uh, I think it's 15 G on re-entry. And you can see, whereas he's looking pretty cheerful here, down here, which is a, a shot from the, the onboard television camera, not a happy a happy chap. He, the good news is he did live to a ripe old age, and he died in the 80s in a, in a home in somewhere in Florida. Now here we are, we're, we're now moving towards the, the, the launch itself at Baikonur, uh, Tour Atom, which is, is the accurate position, um, as we all know, for many years, the Soviet Union told the West, or announced it as Baikonur, which is 250 miles, or was then, to the northeast. But we're down in the in the Kazakhstan. I mean, many people call it steppe, but I, I, it's more akin to semi-desert in terms of very arid in the summer, freezing cold in the winter. Uh, I gather, I haven't been myself, but I gather camels uh, as, as suited as a, a means of transport. But we can see the assembly of the Vostok launcher. There's the the core with one of the strap-ons, RD107 and 108 engines, and there the protective nose cone is positioned over the Vostok itself. So move on to the launch day. Um, the stories are that um, the the night before, obviously by this time we're talking about Gagarin being selected as prime. Titov is back up. You can see um, Gagarin walking out to the bus. Titov over here is the, the the backup, fully suited up, and the stories are that the space medics, uh, the doctors at the time, wired up their beds so that the night before the launch to see who was going to get a good night's sleep. Both of them had worked this one out. They saw the leads coming out of the the, what, the uh, iron beds and stayed absolutely still. Neither of them, the story goes, slept a wink. And then went in the morning when Korolev, who he also hadn't slept a wink uh, for obvious reasons, when he came to wake them up, uh, they both uh, pretended to yawn and said they'd had a great night's sleep. But um, what an extraordinary day for them. Here we are, um, moving to the bus, on board the bus, Gagarin looking extremely relaxed. Titov in the background, Herman Titov, who knew perfectly well he wasn't going to fly. There's no, no conceivable reason why he should fly that day. Obviously resenting his position and, and almost nodding off um, 
to catch you up on his sleep. But it was an odd decision to have have him suited up. But obviously the the system was then that uh, they had to cover every eventuality. And then, as we saw on the film, uh, Gagarin waving his goodbyes. Um, down below, you've got Korolev waving with both both hands. When you see the film, Korolev stands out because of his red sash. A general coming in, waving, waving a farewell as well. And the one of the the medics, fully um, fully suited in in a medical outfit. Then the view of Gagarin uh, on board the Vostok. As he was waiting um, for the the hour long that it took to pull back the the, um, uh, the what was called tulipa, the the petals that held the the rocket down. Uh, he's waiting for that that event. He, they put some music on. He was humming away, sounding uh, suitably relaxed as he as he would do. And here we go. The the quote. That's actually the quote that's in uh, Chris's movie. And in part of that quote, he does say this is recorded obviously well before. He said, "My whole life is now before me as a single breathtaking moment." And Again, saying farewell to Korolev there. The launch itself, um, the, the Tulipa uh, restraints pop back, rocket well away, as we saw on the film, and the situation there was if he, if Gagarin had wanted, he could have ejected. If there was an abort, there was a system for using the ejector seat, which he finally used when he re-entered. Um, there was a big netting uh, area 1,500 metres away from the, the actual launch pad. So at that stage, um, he could have fu- banged out, but obviously without the parachute opening with that technology at that time. And here we go. This is the, the orbit. So we've got the ascent from Baikonur. It took 10 minutes to get into orbit, to get up to speed of 18,000 miles an hour, 617, and right across the top of Russia, coming over close to Vistochny, which is where we heard Mr. Davidoff um, earlier on say that the, the new Russian cosmodrome could be, um, will be located. Um, at this point, he was talking to Alexei Leonov, uh, who was on one of the ground stations at, near um, the east side of Russia. And we understand that at that time, Leonov didn't know which cosmonaut was flying, whether it was Titov or Gagarin. But he instantly recognized Gagarin's voice, and his famous quote is, he said, hello to the blonde man. So we come over across the Pacific, um, along here, there's several Russian tracking ships which are trying to maintain communication. Obviously, it's very difficult at that time. Then he goes into Eclipse, which is really that portion there. And we'll see uh, in the movie tonight, we'll see see what going into Eclipse and coming out of an Eclipse looks like. Uh, Oleg, I'm sure, will tell us the, the, the wonders of that uh, on first hand. But the orbit took him right down, almost across the, the Antarctic area here and up. At this point, he had to fire for 40 seconds. The, the automatic sequence fired the retro rockets, and there was a, a, a 10-minute period between firing and the actual genuine re-entry point here. And of course, the landing is up uh, in the, the Saratov region, which is where he tra- trained uh, as, a, as a pilot. So this is a, a again an illustration goes back to Ken Gatlin's book of the time, but still still a, a nice illustration of of Gagarin's retrofiring sequence. And this is where the big problem happened. The, this didn't happen. Um, when he tried to detach, fired the, or the, the automatic sequence fired the, the straps that were holding the spherical capsule to the instrument unit, the connector that we saw earlier, the um, almost like an umbilical connector between the two segments, didn't detach. It was a 37-pin 
unit which didn't have the right um, the powerful enough guillotine, explosive guillotine to separate it. And extraordinarily, um, the same exactly the same thing happened to Hermann Titov in Vostok II, uh, in a few months later. But it meant that for 10 minutes, these two were attached by the cable. I think one of the quotes was, it was like two cufflinks um, falling into orbit. The two was rotating 30 degrees a second, which is a high speed. Gagarin uh, almost losing consciousness. And he said afterwards he could hear the crackling sound as the, um, obviously as the ablative um, coating on the outside of the spacecraft burned off. In the end, uh, presumably in design, the, the cable did eventually snap, but it was a difficult um, a difficult time. And then when he got to, I think it was something like 21,000 feet, the ejector seat system works. He ejects out and parachute opens, seat drops away, and he lands. And here we see the, um, I imagine there's something more impressive there now, but that was the, the post that was banged into the, the soil of the Saratov area uh, where he touched down. Um, the general standing, this is Gagarin obviously coming out, um, enjoying the, the adulation, but the general behind him here um, has an interesting story. He was told five days before um, by Moscow that he had to recover the first cosmonaut, and obviously that's that's an extremely responsible thing to do, and obviously he didn't. He himself didn't sleep for five days, trying to organise his troops to to uh, do the, the recovery properly. Gagarin striding out. He's now a major, and though he didn't he didn't know it until he was greeted by Korolev, who uh, he, when he said Lieutenant Gagarin reporting successfully, um, Korolev was meant to say congratulations, Major Gagarin. He's actually holding his his major's hat. We see here the the effect of the on the capsule with the the, the burning of the ablative uh, coating. So we're now back. Uh, two days later, in Moscow, he flies to Moscow. I think Reg probably is going to tell you more about this. We have um, the lining up with um, with uh, the uh, the other astronauts. Sorry, cosmonauts here. This goes right through to Voshkod. We can see here very quickly his his meeting with Macmillan. Also with John Zanecki, who's uh, got a good story about uh, meeting Gagarin in the Highgate Cemetery as a young uh, as a young lad and getting inspired to go into space uh, as a result. And obviously uh, enjoyed the attentions that that's actually Gina Lollobrigida. But what I'd like to do, and we know about Gagarin's sad death at uh, in 1968 in a meat crash. What I'd like to do is quickly, and we heard earlier about how it. Um, uh, how the various problems that the Russian space program had. Um, Korolev died in 1966. They didn't uh, beat the Zond program, didn't beat the Americans with Apollo 8, and of course Armstrong was on the moon. But what I like, and this is the legacy of Gagarin with Salyut and Mir and the space station. I'd like to, and finally, a fascinating picture taken from Snowbans the other day, and uh, this was for the eight and a half inch reflecting telescope. Shows you what can be done with CCD cameras. That's actually Steve Bowen doing a spacewalk, a NASA astronaut. To my mind, extraordinary photograph. And I loved uh, Korolev and uh, Gagarin to have seen that. But I'd like to quickly just finish with um, the thoughts on the next 50 years. I think private space flight, is, as, as we know, is, is coming through. I think in the next two years, that's going to make a big difference to orbital access. Plans for, this is Lockheed Martin's, uh, it's called uh, Plymouth Rock, plan to visit an asteroid. And down, we've got, we've got the Moon and Mars possibly in the next 50 years. But down here, thinking for the longer term, the next 50 years, this is a BIS 
almost getting to the starship level of, of planetary, of interplanetary travel. This is the Icarus Pathfinder. And to finish, um, we now have this photograph, uh, which Oleg uh, would have uh, enjoyed looking at on the Zvezda module of the ISS. And um, we have that lovely quote from Gagarin, where he says, to be first to enter the cosmos, could one dream of anything more? And uh, couldn't have said it better. I'd like to finally share this with you, which is 2061. Comet Halley is coming back. And um, for those of you who read uh, 2061 Odyssey 3, Arthur Clarke's book, there was in that fiction uh, the story of a visit, a human visit to, to land, as, you, as far as you can, on uh, Halley's Comet when it was less active than it is there. Wouldn't it be fantastic if the to celebrate Gagarin 100, such a mission happened in 50 years' time? Thank you very much.